my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Howdy, hey, and hello there. Welcome to another episode of Weird Finance, where we try to help you feel a little less weird about money, one conversation at a time. I'm your host, Paco DeLeon, and on this week's episode, I'm chatting with Aaron Thomas. The idea of a prenup makes me uncomfortable. Uh, Maybe that's because I associate them more with divorce than I do with happy marriages, but I've just learned that I've been thinking about this the wrong way. Now, it turns out prenups aren't just for divorce. In fact, they can be a powerful tool for building a strong and financially secure marriage. At least that's what this week's guest, Aaron Thomas, an award-winning divorce attorney, author, and founder of prenups.com has taught me. In this conversation, I learned all about how prenups can actually support happy marriages. We'll discuss how the process of creating a prenup can help couples communicate openly about their financial goals and expectations, and how a prenup can end up providing peace of mind for both partners. Well, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Aaron. Aaron Thomas, thank you so much for joining me on the Weird Finance Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's it's an honor to be here. I honestly have so many questions, and I would just want to get through as many as we can, because I'm really 
fascinated by this topic of prenup agreements. I also am totally uncomfortable with this topic because of what it implies. It it automatically makes me think about divorce. And I think that's probably one of the big, big, you know, hangups that I probably have and a lot of people have. But before we dig into all of that, I would love to give the paint a picture for the listener of how accomplished you are and and who you are today or how you became who you are today. So you are a three-time winner of Atlanta's best divorce attorney. Didn't know that was a thing. Congratulations. A Harvard Law grad. You've repped over a thousand clients, including NBA Hall of Famers, Super Bowl winners, and Grammy Award winners as well. And you have a new book called The Prenup Prescription, which is out. And after years of working with clients one-on-one, you launched prenups.com. So uh, just a couple of questions off the bat. Why'd you get into divorce and family law? And why'd you start prenups.com? Yeah, yeah. Thanks for asking. I mean, when it comes to becoming a divorce lawyer, I have to confess, it is not what I said I wanted to be when I grew up, (laughs) when I was a kid. I kind of stumbled into it. I was a public defender, loved what I did. These student loans were not really going anywhere. And I got recruited into family law by a law firm that needed somebody who had trial experience. And they were willing to pay me enough that I could pay my loans and have a little bit of money left over. And so, you know, I joined up and I got into it and really had no idea what it entailed. My parents just celebrated 57 years together at the time that I started doing family law, which is, you know, just a euphemism for a divorce lawyer. At the time that I got into it, I really, you know, I didn't know much about, I didn't, none of my friends had been divorced. I really didn't know what went into it. You know, I had a vague idea that you split what you had, you know, what you accumulated over the course of the marriage and that you kept what you had coming in and, you know, you know, and then you split everything else 50-50. I thought it was pretty simple and that could not be further from the truth. You know, I got in and realized that the average contested divorce case takes, you know, 12 to 18 months, even longer post-COVID with all the backups in the court system and it is not unusual for couples to spend 20 to 25% of their net worth on the divorce case itself. I mean, I knew that going through a divorce is bad from like the relationship standpoint, the emotional standpoint, the end of a relationship that you thought was going to last forever. But I didn't realize how bad the actual case itself is, like working with the lawyers and going through litigation And so prenups wasn't really on my radar at the beginning. I, you know, my initial advice after doing family law for a few years was don't get married. (laughs) You know, I, I, (laughs) I was so scared away because of how bad a divorce is that my friends, my family, anyone who would listen, I would tell them, you know, don't get married at all. So, you know, as you can imagine, I was super fun at parties, never (laughs) got invited to do a best man speech for some reason. But over time, I think my views kind of softened. And then I met my future wife and started thinking about, you know, what would it look like for us to get married? Is there a way that I could possibly avoid the pitfalls that I've seen all of my clients over the years experience? And my wife, who is also a lawyer, and she had been through a divorce of her own, we kind of sat down and thought, all right, if we were going to do this correctly, like how can we reverse engineer a happy marriage? You know, what what would we put into our agreement that would, you know, benefit us, avoid the common things that people argue about, particularly when it comes to money. 
And we wrote kind of our own prenup that, you know, laid out, you know, spending limits and, you know, transparency rules when it comes to finances and even things about mandatory counseling. And, you know, we put all of these things, all of the best tools into our own prenup. And then I started telling, you know, we started telling our friends and other people about it. And people came to us and said, you've got to let other people know that this exists because most people look at a prenup and think that it is, you know, you're trying to keep your money out of the gold diggers' hands and you're planning for a divorce, you know, which is what I thought before I started doing family law myself. And that was kind of the genesis for the idea of, of specializing in prenups was coming from it from a positive angle and helping people avoid, you know, what I saw over the years as a divorce lawyer. It kind of sounds like you've created terms and conditions for your marriage. Is that off? I think that's accurate. I think, <laughs> I think that's probably right. Yeah, we wanted the prenup to be, I mean, most people think about a prenup being what happens if you divorce, right? Right. That's that's what the prenup is. It's just what happens when you get divorced. I think a more accurate view of a prenup is, you know, a set of rules regarding your rights and responsibilities, both during and after, if necessary, the marriage. And so we really honed in on the during the marriage and tried to come up with a set of rules that would avoid conflict, and give us a framework to resolve conflict during the marriage itself. (laughs) Aaron, this is my honest reaction to that. It sounds to me like that would cause more conflict in my marriage or in a marriage, right? When we already have these like predetermined rules for how one ought to behave. And I don't know if it's because I'm not an attorney, so my head doesn't automatically go there. And having like these rules and restrictions to me automatically feels like, I, I don't know, this is going to sound off, but like I'm not allowed to, to do something. Not that I want, you know, not that I want to act outside of whatever we agreed upon in the first place, but I would like for you, Aaron, to help me, guide me through this immediate resistance that I have to setting, like having operating rules for marriage. It just Straight up, it sounds unsexy, Aaron. It doesn't sound like a fun (laughs) thing in a relationship. It sounds like reading an employee handbook. That's what this feels like. Yeah, yeah. No, I I totally get that. I think that, you know, so let me give you an example. One of the the rules that my wife and I have in our own prenup is that we discuss any expenses that come out of the joint bank account that are more than $500 before they come out. And a lot of people look at that and say, oh, so you have like, you have to check in, you've got to, you've got to ask for permission, you know, to spend the money that you're earning. And the way I look at it is, it is, you know, it's like, it's mutual respect. It is not, you know, it's not so much asking permission as it is establishing, you know, some guidelines of the type of behavior that we want to encourage in our relationship. So in reality today, we probably discuss things that are over $200 before we make those expenditures because we have built into our relationship kind of this expectation that we're going to communicate about things that impact the other spouse. And I believe that it's actually bled out into other parts of our relationship, not just financial conversations, but just we have an expectation of transparency. We have an expectation that we're going to communicate about certain things. And I think it is ended up benefiting our relationship. So that's, that's just one example. Another would be counseling. You know, so 
we have a rule in our prenup that says that if either one of us wants to go to counseling, we're going to counseling. No questions asked. This, along with a lot of the other rules, you know, quote unquote rules that we have in our prenup, came from, you know, me, like you said, litigating over a thousand divorce cases over the years and seeing what are the most common things that people disagree about? What are the things that I hear from my clients that really frustrated them? You know, one is spending without me knowing about it, you know, kind of lack of transparency when it comes to spending. And another is, you know, I wanted to go to counseling and they weren't interested. And then they went, when they finally came around to counseling, like I was done with the relationship. And so we said, all right, on, from the front end, we're just going to agree that if either one one of us wants to go, to go go to counseling, we're going to counseling. No questions asked. And so we have a rule that says that once a year, either one of us can trigger the counseling provision, and we've got to go to a minimum of three counseling sessions. Um, and if we wanted to end the relationship, we've got to do six counseling sessions. Some of my clients make that 12. Um, but it's just kind of, you know, creating the framework that allows us to communicate about things that are actually going to benefit the relationship. Okay. So, but what happens when the rules get violated? And I am kind of piecing it together. I like that if you want to get a divorce, you want to split up, you have to go through X amount of counseling sessions. I think that's really smart um, for many, many reasons. But like what's happening before then? Like you use the example of having a conversation on joint expenses that are $500 and above. Like what happens if your wife is out there popping off in Target buying stuff <laughs> that on the joint account at $1,000? Yeah, yeah, no, great question. I think that, you know, when people think about you're signing a legal agreement, the first thing that comes to mind is enforcement, right? How do I enforce this? You know, can I drag my spouse to court if they're popping off at Target, right? <laughs> and I think that there are two other elements to, you know, putting something into an agreement, even if you're not going to take your spouse to court over it. You know, one is awareness and the other is commitment, right? So one awareness is just knowing that the rule is there, right? Most people don't know that their spouse is breaking a financial rule because there's no rule in there in the first place. And so they just kind of complain, oh, you know, my wife's spending is out of control. And every time I turn around, there's, you know, a stack of Amazon boxes on the front porch. <laughs> and then the second is commitment. You know, people like to live up to their word. And so 99.99 of what we put in our contracts never see the inside of a courtroom because people just have, they've committed to it and they're going to follow through because people want to be true to their word. So, you know, it's just kind of like if you've got a, a lease agreement and if you're late on your lease, you pay 50 bucks. Is it ever going to be worth it to take somebody to court if they don't pay the $50, you know, late fee for their lease? Probably not. Because just the filing fee alone is going to be more than that. But guess what? People pay it. Mm. People pay their late fees because they've committed to it. And, you know, the, the nightmare scenarios that I see are when there's no visibility at all on finances, when, you know, one spouse just spends and you can't call them out because there was never an explicit conversation or an explicit agreement that these are the rules we're going to follow by. But when you do have those, then you know, all right, hey, when we got married, we agreed that we were going to talk about this kind of spending. We agreed that we were going to agree, we were going to, you know, agree on any investment decisions before those decisions were made. And you're not living up to that. So you at least have the basis to start the conversation, you know, whereas if there's no rules, you just kind of 
it bothers you, but you know, where's your standing to even bring it up? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, the tagline on your website is the prenuptial agreement that helps you stay married. And when I first read that, I was like, what the hell does that mean? And now that we're chatting through it, <laughs> it's very clear. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people, yeah, yeah. It's 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 easy to be skeptical of it. You know, when you hear prenup, you know, the first thing that comes to your mind is probably not, oh, that's going to help my relationship. It's going to help me stay married. But you know, I think that a prenup is, it is a contract, is like any other contract. There can be a good contract, there can be a bad contract. The same way that we think about prenups as kind of solidifying disparate net worths, solidifying a situation where one spouse has a lot more access to money than the other, a prenup can serve the exact opposite purpose. You can write into your prenup, if anything happens, everything that we accumulate over the course of our marriage, we're splitting 50-50. And you can lock yourself into that rather than leave it up to your worst impulses at the time when the relationship is broken down, the trust is no longer there, the communication is no longer longer there, and it becomes a a zero-sum game that I've seen in way too many divorce cases where people just want to walk away with as much as possible. I know your website is not called alreadymarriedagreements.com, but (laughs) what if you're already married? Is there a way to sit down and take the time to start making rules or has that ship sailed for us, for the folks that are already married? No, you can do a postnuptial agreement in 49 out of the 50 states. And I, I think that Iowa will eventually get on board. Postnups are enforceable, you know, everywhere else in the country. And a lot of people who come to me are couples who are already married. And either, you know, some people, they wanted to get a prenup, they waited too late, they drug their feet, they're already married. But a lot of people, something has happened in their relationship. You know, whether it is kind of traditional infidelity, whether there's been some kind of financial infidelity, or a lot of couples, they've been married and they've kind of lived their lives as though their finances are separate. And they realize over time that, wait a minute, you know, we didn't just sign a relationship contract. We signed a legal contract. We signed a financial contract. And we are inextricably tied to each other in a real way. And we need to decide, you know, it could be something as simple as what's mine, what's yours, and what's ours. And and the failure to get on the same page on just that very simple question leads to the demise of so many marriages nationwide and puts so much money, you know, takes so much money from the pockets of couples and into the pockets of divorce lawyers every single year. Just the failure to address that that kind of basic issue. You're making me feel like really appreciative of my own personal finance background here and all of the conversations I've had with my partner about, yeah, how, how should we set up our joint finances? What's the healthiest way to do this where you feel a sense of autonomy and but we feel like we're working together? What about, I have some friends who are so radical, some of my friends, they're like, let's buy a house, let's have a kid, let's never get married. <laughs> What kind of agreements do, you know, would you recommend these folks set up as their lives are clearly intertwined, yet they, for whatever reason, don't want to get married? Yeah, yeah. I Great question. We also do cohabitation agreements for your radical friends who don't want to get married, where we cover a lot of the same kinds of things. And weirdly, in them avoiding getting married, 
they might be putting themselves in, in an even more vulnerable position. Because if you buy a house together and you are married, if you get divorced, the court is going to split up the equity in that house. Whereas if you buy a house with your boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever, and you break up, there's no divorce case. The court doesn't have like kind of this easy mechanism to come in and, and split up the equity in your home. And a lot of people find themselves trapped in ownership of a residence with, without a clear way to get out. Now, there's something you can file. You can do you know, what's called an equitable partition. But they're often many multiple times more expensive than even a divorce case would be. And I think that, you know, the cohabitating couples also fall into some other traps where they say, all right, we're not going to combine finances at all. And they're kind of living in this, this, this fiction, like, like their money isn't intertwined. And you can't go Dutch for life. You know, <laughs> you, can't, you can't live in the same household in a relationship, but in different socioeconomic classes because you've kept your, your, your money, quote unquote, separate. And so even those couples, I think, would benefit from going through kind of the steps in the system of pretend like, at least pretend like you're getting a prenup and go through the steps so that you force those sometimes difficult, but necessary conversations about money that can doom your relationship if they're not treated appropriately. Okay, so I know that, you know, Finance is personal, right? Personal finance is very personal. What works for one person doesn't work for the other. But I am also, you know, my human brain just wants the best answer. So if you could humor me and tell me of, you know, throughout all of your experience, like what is, in your opinion, the best way for couples to merge their finances? Absolutely. And you're right. There are there are different ways to set it up, but I think there are some general frameworks of, of best practices. So what we recommend is that you set up kind of, we call it the money buckets. So you have three buckets of, of money. You have mine, yours, and ours. And that can work for both your assets and debts. For example, you know, if I'm coming in with this student loan debt, that's going to belong to me. You're coming in with your credit cards, that belongs to you. And then, you know, the things that we have together, you know, rent or mortgage, utilities, groceries, you know, those are pretty easy things to put into the hours bucket. And then you divvy up your income amongst those three buckets the same way. So, you know, some couples use what I call the inside out plan, uh, which is kind of the more traditional plan that your grandparents probably use, where all of the money in the household goes into one joint bank account. And then each spouse gets an allowance, for lack of a better way to put it, or an allotment that goes out into their separate accounts that they can spend Without oversight, you know, they can they maintain some level of autonomy over their own personal spending. So my wife doesn't see how often to go to Chick-fil-A, right? And then some couples do what I call the outside-in plan, where all of their income goes into their separate accounts, and then they contribute to a joint account that is used to pay for their truly joint expenses. And in either way, you, you just want to make sure that you have a, a joint account where both spouses have visibility. There's transparency around, you know, what is the spending that is attached to the household? Both spouses are contributing, you know, usually proportionate to their income. You don't want to have a situation where, you know, one spouse is left with $100 at the end of the month and the other spouse is left with 100 grand at the end of the month. And there's this kind of, you know, weird power dynamic in the household. 
But either way, you have you know a clear delineation between these three buckets that I think for most couples is going to yield the best combination of you know transparency and you know coming together where necessary while still having you know some autonomy over your own spending. What about considerations when one spouse earns a lot more than the other spouse? How do we navigate that clearly, you know, unequal or potentially very awkward situation? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I, you know, first thing, and this is going to be individual to the couple, but first thing is to avoid, you know, the going Dutch. You know, if one spouse is making far more money, it is probably not going to be fair for them to pay 50% of the expenses for them to go 50-50 on, on everything. A lot of couples will use kind of a pro rata contribution to the joint expenses. So, you know, a very common way for people to set that up in their agreement is say, okay, if I make 80 grand and you make 20 grand a year, then I'm going to pay 80% of the expenses and you pay 20% of expenses. And we contribute to the joint account in that, in that manner. I have some couples who say, oh, I make more money, so I'll just pay, you know, for the joint expenses and, you know, I'll just cover, I'll cover the house, I'll cover the mortgage, I'll cover all the bills and they can just keep their money. And a lot of times they find that 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 ends up not working out and creating resentment on both sides because the higher earning spouse says, well, I, you know, I'm the one who's actually paying for all the things. So this is really just my house, you know, in the midst of an argument. And then the spouse who is not contributing to those expenses feels like they don't have ownership. You know, if they're not paying for the expenses for the house, do they really have a say in how you renovate the kitchen or, you know, what color you paint the walls if they're not contributing? But if each spouse is contributing, say, 50% of their take-home income to the joint account, no matter what that is, then both feel like they have an equal say. They both have ownership. They both have a say in what goes on in the household. And because it's coming in a joint account, both spouses have visibility as to what money is going in and coming out. And I think that even just psychologically, that can be a huge benefit to couples when there's disparate incomes. Yeah, definitely a lot of psychology when it comes to navigating our finances. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? 
it's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. I bought another pair of shoes online, and I didn't even need them. It just popped up as an ad that said they were on sale, so I didn't even think twice before buying them. Ah, yes, the struggle against impulse purchases is so real. They get the best of us sometimes. How often does this happen? Honestly, more than I'd like to admit. I just can't resist a good deal. When it comes to sales, the fact that the deal could expire is one way these companies make you feel a sense of scarcity and urgency to buy. One way to fight against this is to wait 24 hours before buying. If you still want it the next day, then consider it. And if it's gone, maybe you didn't really need it anyway. I never thought about it like that. I'll definitely wait before buying, and I'll definitely consider how sales tactics are influencing me. Now I know. And knowing is half the battle. Weird Finance. Weird Finance. One of the things you talk about is how marriage is much more financially complicated for our generation than it was for our parents and our grandparents. Would you mind talking a bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. The example that I like to give, you know, I look at, I look at my parents who got married in, in the 1960s. And the average couple back then, number one, they got married at, at average age about 21. And credit cards really hadn't been invented Back then, student loans were a small fraction of what they are today. You could literally still work your way through school, which is laughable in most instances today. 401ks hadn't even really been invented back then. And online banking wasn't a thing. And so the average couple who got married in the 60s had maybe one, maybe two bank accounts between them, no credit cards, no student loans, no retirement usually no equity in a home. They would likely just move from their parents' house directly into their shared apartment. And so, you know, if it were a business, it would be like uh, a startup in your garage, starting from you know, complete scratch. And then you compare that to the average couple today who gets married, first marriage is on average at age 30. And each spouse is likely to have four or five bank accounts, three or four credit cards, 
tens, maybe six figures of student loans, uh, a retirement account or two, because they didn't roll over from the first one. They may have some equity in the condo. They've likely each got a vehicle. Maybe there's a small business involved. And, and maybe more important than all of that, they've got a decade of their own financial habits that they have built up since moving out of their parents' household. And so if the couple getting married in the 60s was like a startup in your garage, the average couple getting married today, it is like a corporate merger. And you just you would simply never do something of that magnitude without a written agreement or at least like some real detailed discussions on how are we going to make this work and what falls into what categories and who's responsible for what here. And so it is it is a landmine when people with, you know, more complicated financial lives that they give themselves credit for move in together, join their financial lives and think that they can just wing it without having, you know, some friction and difficulties. Yeah, I think it's easy to take for granted how complicated our financial lives have become because I mean, I think about money all the time and I hadn't even considered this. I hadn't considered how simple things were in terms of just what I'm bringing into a partnership. So I appreciate that. One of the things you also say, or your website also says, is the average couple spends more time on the wedding invitation list than on how they'll merge their finances. And I think, you know, what you just said really shines a light on that. I would love if you could share a story about how, like a time that a prenup made a big difference in the client's life. Maybe you don't get those stories because things work out, but I'm just curious if maybe you do have some of those stories. Yeah. I, I mean, clients are coming back to me all the time and telling me that uh, going through the process of preparing a prenuptial agreement has eased their concerns about going into marriage, has forced conversations that they wanted to bring up, but they didn't know how to address. So, for example, you know, the first step to getting a prenup, for a prenup to be enforceable in any of the 50 states, both spouses have to disclose all of their assets and debts to one another. And we literally do that by preparing a net worth statement for each spouse, and we attach it to the back of the agreement. So it's not just a conversation about money, but you're literally creating a spreadsheet. And for a lot of people, it is the first time that they have really ever seen you know, their spouse's net worth or the amount of you know, debts that exist there. And because of you know, how taboo money is. I mean, it is the whole reason why we need weird finance and finance <laughs> for the people is because people have difficulty talking openly about money, about having these conversations. And, you know, when you're dating, like you're trying to put on your best, you know, face, you don't bring up the 20 grand in credit card debt you've got <laughs> on your first date. It is not comfortable. And then it becomes very easy not to mention it on the second date or the third date. And before you know it, you're moving in together and you're applying for a home loan. And now it comes out that you owe the IRS 15 grand or you've got, you know, 100 grand in student loans or your credit score is not as good as you'd like it to be. And now it's a much more difficult conversation because it feels like you've hit something. And so, for a lot of couples, I think they feel the benefit of, okay, I had a, I had a time where we, we, we agreed it was going to be a no judgment zone. It was, you know, no shame. We're going through this process and we laid out our finances and it forced some real conversations about, okay, how are we going to handle this debt? You know, if we're in this together, you know, now we've got to have the conversation about, 
our psychology around money. You know, are you a spender? Are you a saver? Where did that come from? What do we want things to look like for our family? Are we going to carry debt on our credit cards? Are we going to pay them off, you know, 100%? Are we saving for retirement in the way that we want to be doing? And one of the other things that we'll put in the agreement, I recommend the couples do at least what I call the annual shareholders meeting, where you sit down and you have an agenda of, you know, what you're going to talk about every year, which includes, you know, we're going to update each other on um, our incomes, the assets and debts. Um, we're going to do a look back from the past year. What did our spending look like? Um, were there any big surprises? Is there something we can take from last year to inform, you know, our upcoming year? And it's not all doom and gloom. You know, my my wife and I, we have a, a rule that uh, travel is a big value of ours. It's something that we wanted to prioritize. And so we decided that 5% of all the household take-home income is going to automatically go into a travel fund. So we want to take a trip. The money is there. And the more money we make, you know, the more we get to travel or the, you know, the nicer things we get to do on these trips. And because we've decided to make that a priority, it, it happens, you know, much more automatically than just kind of, oh, you know, I wish we could take a trip. And for some couples, that's, that's a baby fund or it's the house fund or it's the college fund for the kids. But people can kind of, you know, put out what their priorities are. Because this forced conversation is happening, I'm saying forced, you know, in quotation marks, but because we're requiring that this conversation happen, people are much more likely to to have the space, to have the permission to talk about what's important to them. And the clients that I've worked with really like that. Almost nobody says no to including, you know, the annual shareholders meeting. If anything, people say, we want to do it quarterly. We want to do it monthly. We want to make sure that we're having these check-ins so that, you know, little resentments about money don't just linger in the background and build and build and build onto the explode because we have a set time. It is a repeating event on our calendar. that We are going to sit down and we're going to talk about these issues and address them. Well, Aaron, you got me excited about prenups. I am shocked. <laughs> <laughs> my, my last question before I hit you with some of these rapid fire questions where I ask you about your finances. It was going to be how, how to start a conversation with your, with a partner about prenups, but I think I already know the answer. It's send your partner this episode because you've done <laughs> such a good job of making something that automatically in my body, I'm like, yuck, this is going to be awful. We're basically talking about divorce here, but uh, I appreciate that you are really looking at kind of upriver solutions. And honestly, you're putting yourself out of a job in a way, right? Why by starting prenups.com. So very commendable, respectable. I, yeah, I, I would love if it became such the norm for couples to get prenuptial agreements that, you know, the, the world would survive with fewer divorce lawyers. <laughs> I'll put it at that. Okay, wait, maybe I do have one more question. Does it make the job of the divorce lawyer, it makes it much easier, I presume, if you have a prenup, because then you have rules, correct? Yeah, yeah. If things if things are already laid out, then, you know, it does make the job of the divorce lawyer a lot easier. You know, when I was litigating divorces, you know, I had the same conversation over and over in my office where couples came in and, and said, what do you mean she wants half of my retirement? What do you mean he wants half of the house that I paid the mortgage for all these years? And you have to explain to them, you know, as soon as you got married, all of your income became considered, you know, joint money. Like, unless you signed an agreement otherwise, you know, you signed the default prenup, which is everything is considered, you know, one big pile. And 
I, I think that that is the toughest part about divorce is people not recognizing what they signed up for in the first place. So when people do it uh, explicitly and intentionally by signing a prenup, yeah, it makes it makes the divorce process easier. Now, you can't address custody or child support in a prenup or a postnup. Those are the things that can only be addressed when the issue arises. But if you can get the money issues out of the way, you are certainly more than halfway there in a lot of cases. Got it. I'm just like my head is spinning. You could totally just have a podcast, Aaron, where you talk people through, I guess, what you normally would talk them through as clients. I feel like lots of people would tune in and listen to all that tea getting spilled for sure. Well, well, thank, thank you. Maybe maybe you can come on uh, <laughs> if I start that up and uh, help me get it started. I'll just be the popcorn popper, you know? <laughs> all right, Aaron, let me hit you with these rapid fire questions. Is there anything you purchased that maybe to the naked eye seems frivolous, but for you feels like money well spent? Yes. My, you know, I am one of those nerds who updates my phone every year on the day the new phone comes out. And I know a lot of people think that it is frivolous to spend a thousand dollars, you know, on a new phone when your old phone works perfectly fine. My justification that I am telling myself is that I use my phone so much, you know, every single day, day in and day out. And it holds, you know, pictures of my daughter and my most precious emails and memories and that kind of thing. And, and having like the best camera on it to take pictures is super important to me. So on a like per minute basis of how much I use my phone, it's worth it. If I can spend 200 bucks on a jacket that I wear only on special occasions, you know, $1,000 for a phone. You know, I'm already justifying myself, but yeah. <laughs> My favorite part of your response is that you called your emails precious. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, that's revealing. <laughs> right, exactly. What's, tell me you work a lot without telling me you work a lot, right? What's one piece of advice, financial or otherwise, that you'd give to your younger self? Probably that, you know, credit cards are not free money even though the uh, the credit card vendors showed up on my first week of college on campus and seemed to be just handing out thousands of dollars for us to outfit our dorm rooms with electronics. Turns out they expect that you, you, you pay that back someday. So maybe if I could catch 18-year-old Aaron, I would, I would educate him on, on some of those things. It sounds like, you know, our generation has a lot of that. A lot of us were preyed upon on the college campus. It's like, the when I watch Mad Men and I see like the mom smoking in the nursery and I'm like, this is insane or this is, you know, so <laughs> gnarly that they didn't know. And for our generation, it's like, do you want a Frisbee? Uh, just fill out this credit card. So it, it does make me feel yeah. a little bit better that I wasn't the only one victimized there. For sure. Tell me, did you have any financial superstitions growing up by chance? I don't know if they were superstitions as much as it was just kind of like, you know, you don't talk about money, you know, like, sure. like it was like the fight club rule, you know, <laughs> like you don't talk about it. You don't ask about it. I think that in my house, that meant that I didn't learn about it, you know, until I went to college and made the mistakes for myself. So, yeah. That makes sense. First rule about money is you don't talk about money. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. The last one for you, Aaron. Do you have any financial fumbles that you can look back on and laugh at? Yes. Interestingly, I think my biggest financial fumble that comes to mind came from me trying to do the right thing financially. I was I was maybe trying to be cheap. I had a 
I had a 1992 Honda Civic that I was trying to keep alive for as long as possible. And I, you know, the engine had died out and I went to try to get a replace and I chose, you know, what I thought was going to be the cheapest possible solution. A guy who was going to replace it with a, a used engine, you know, from that he got off of like the secondhand market. And it ended up, I ended up having to replace the engine, that car three separate times it ended up costing me way more than if I had just paid a little bit more money, you know, to get it done correctly the first time. I, I remember when I finally went to uh, a reputable mechanic and he asked me, who did this to your car? Who put this in your car? And I said, oh, it was Sam. And he said, Sam, the scam, <laughs> which is <laughs> something you never want to hear <laughs> about someone who worked on your your vehicle. So it ended up costing me a lot more money. I can look back and, and, and laugh on it now, but uh, it was not laughable then. <laughs> oh, man, that's rough. Oh, Aaron, thank you so much for sharing that story, the very vulnerable story about Sam the Scam. And thank you for coming on and seriously, you know, making me understand prenups on a whole entirely new level and understanding how it is helpful for a marriage and not something that you should, you know, avoid talking about. So for the folks that want to follow along, want to get a prenup, uh, want to get your book, where should we send them? Yeah, come check out my website at prenups.com. We've got lots of free resources and information and videos there. And they can also check out my book, which is on Amazon, The Prenup Prescription. Thank you so much for coming on, Aaron. Thanks so much for having me, Paco. It's been great. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. With finance. With finance. With finance. Now it's time for Slow and Steady with Leo. Before we jump in, I'd like to introduce Leo Aquino. Leo is an anti-capitalist personal finance expert, award-winning journalist, poet, 
writer, God's favorite, and my friend. Without further ado, I invite us all to take a pause and let Leo take us all on a slow and steady journey. Take it away, Leo. Thank you for having me. I am worthy of love and care, regardless of how much I spend on Christmas presents this year. I can be thoughtful and generous without going into debt. I give meaningful gifts. I receive meaningful gifts. I leave my emotional baggage at the door before last minute holiday shopping. My family and friends feel my love for them, regardless of how much I spend on their gifts. I feel loved by my family and friends, regardless of how much they spend on my gifts. Besides money and material things, I happily give love in endless ways. I am enough. I have enough. I have more than enough. I stay grounded in my enoughness when holiday ads try to tell me otherwise. I have everything I need. The universe consistently showers me with more than what I need. I am safe and protected from predatory lenders hiding in plain sight. I have enough time. I am well rested. I wait to make big purchases until I am calm and well rested. I travel with safety and ease. I am kind to retail and airline workers. I have so much time and money that it overflows to causes I believe in and to the workers that need it most during the holiday season. I can afford to be kind and generous to strangers. I don't have to wait until the new year to start making healthier money choices. I remember to breathe. I stay grounded in times of financial chaos. Thank you. Thank you, Leo. I love them all. Oh, thank you. Do you want to talk about any of them? Yeah. 
you know, I was thinking about the holidays and how it's already an emotionally loaded time. <laughs> Going to see family, friends, you know, some complicated relationships there. And then on top of that, there's the expectation of buying gifts and it's extra loaded, like, you know, what the gifts mean, what the objects mean. <laughs> Personally, like giving and receiving gifts is like not really a love language for me. So I've been in a position where like, <laughs> you know, people be looking at me sideways on Christmas because <laughs> I don't give the best gifts, you know, and I'm like, but I still love you. I really do. And I almost feel a little bit like, but doesn't anything else that I did the rest of the year, like count, you know? Yeah. So I was trying to write some affirmations for myself too, like, you know, of how I feel around the holidays, especially like the materialism of it all. And I also wanted to write some affirmations that, you know, address the fact that making better choices around the holidays isn't the whole picture. You know, there's an entire capitalist machine that profits off of your loaded emotions, <laughs> mm -hmm. the loaded meaning of gifts this holiday season to make more money. And, you know, it comes from marketing especially the feeling of urgency, like buy it, buy it now, buy it now, pay later, you know? <laughs> yeah. It comes from marketing and also, yeah, predatory lenders that are just normalized, hiding in plain sight, you know? And, you know, I'm really of the belief, like no matter how much you know, how it works, it's like they just have so many more resources on their side. <laughs> yeah. Especially, you know, especially with like AI and stuff, like they like know you inside out. They like know what the inside of my booty hole looks like at this point. You know, <laughs> like it's, they know me. <laughs> so yeah, I'm just hoping to, I was just hoping to write some stuff that would keep us kind of shielded as much as possible energetically from those things. I definitely feel that. I definitely feel like giving us a little bit of space to have a little bit of grace and to, you know, just uh, navigate this time the best way that we can. So thank you for your words and your intentions. You are a gift, Leo. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you again for listening to Weird Finance. If you like the show, please express that like by giving us a positive review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help us out a lot. And if you'd like to receive even more content from me, you can sign up for my weekly email newsletter, The Nerd Letter. Each week, I'll send you a short email of things I've read and recommend. Sign up for it at thehellyagroup.com. Here we are at the end of another episode of Weird Finance, an iHeartMedia production and just would not be possible without the help of many wonderful, caring, hardworking, and talented folks like my producer, Ramsey Yunt. He produced, edited, did some sound design, and he even sang a little bit on this episode. Thank you so much to Leo Kino for the love and the care they put into their segment, Slow and Steady with Leo. Thank you to my friends, Jenna and Andrew Parker for lending your voices for this week's PSA. Our theme song was written and performed by me and my dear, dear friends, Jenna Parker and Andrew Parker. If you have any comments, questions about money, suggestions, or you wanna be a part of the show, Give us a call at 833-ASK-PACO. That's 833-275-7226. Or send us an email at weirdfinancepod at gmail.com. 
that's it. We'll catch you here next week. In the meantime, take care. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.